0: Welcome to the Untangling Web3 podcast, your go-to hub to learn insights and the latest developments in the wild and wonderful world of Web3. I'm Alec Burns.
1: And I'm Jack Davis. Tune in each week as we navigate and explore the rapidly emerging landscape of the Web3 technologies, projects, and ideas that are shaping the future of the internet.
0: We'll be talking to the best and brightest in the industry to keep on covering
1: insights. So that hopefully we can all learn together on our journey to untangle Web3. Welcome to the first episode of the Untangling Web3 podcast. I am Jack Davis. I
0: am a researcher in blockchain. I've been working in the field around five years. And I'm Alec Burns, and I've had an interest in disruptive technology for quite a while now. I've been a researcher both academically and industrially, and more recently I've moved into the world of product. And let's not forget our behind-the-scenes producer, Emma. And she's also the filter and the, the one that keeps us on track. And he's doing a lot of hard work in the background. Uh, we also have ChatGPT as well. That's quite exciting, isn't it, Jack? Yeah, Emma and ChatGPT making us look good. And hopefully ChatGPT will be uh, providing all the insights instead of us, hopefully. I mean, I think we need it. There's a lot of buzz around ChatGPT. I think a lot of it is justified and some of it's not so justified. Maybe a future episode about that.
1: Yeah, we're getting ahead of ourselves. But how, how are you, Alec? Are you,
0: uh, are you excited for this? I, I, I know I am. I'm good. I know we've wanted to do this for a while. This is very exciting. I think this is going to be a lot of fun, and I think we're both going to learn a lot, and hopefully the people that are listening, uh, not just my mom, are going to learn a lot as well. Yeah,
1: this is new territory for us. Um, maybe we should explain a little bit about the podcast and what the purpose of it is. Um, so yeah, the kind of my my thinking here is this is a great way for for us to learn a little bit about web three because i think it's safe to say we work in the space but we're not necessarily experts right
0: yeah it, it's definitely true and i think i was telling you about this jack before um the episode is i speak to my mom on a weekly basis and she asked me how work is going often And sometimes she asks me what I actually do. And I've worked in the space now for two years, effectively, and she still has no idea what I do. And I think it's less a reflection on her, maybe more reflection on me specifically, or even the industry itself. that It's quite complicated to explain what Web3 is. I'm sure you've had the same experience, but there's a lot of people that are very interested, but there's an extremely high barrier to entry. And I'm hoping that this podcast can you know, help demystify some of the things that are going on out there. And me and you certainly aren't like the kind of the, the full experts on this. So I'm hoping sure, that we yeah. learn a lot together
1: during this. Yeah, there's a lot of people out there who get, you know, on the first part of the the, the learning curve and feel like they're experts. And I think we're over that first hump and uh, we're now experiencing that trough of realizing how little you, you really know about everything. So, yeah, I think us us learning you know, more about web three and understanding it together was, is one of the main goals. And yeah, as you say, just making it a little bit more accessible, I think would be, uh, would be great. So hopefully that's what we'll achieve, but only time will tell, I guess.
0: Exactly. I mean, should we kick it off then? Should we try and yeah. define what web three is? Sure. Sure. Do you want to go first uh, okay, bite yeah. the bullet? I'll, I'll go first. I'll go first. So, I mean, I think I want to start with a caveat that web three is not fully defined. It's a vision right now. So, you know, the the kind of the definition may vary from person to person. And that's kind of saved me a little bit. And now I would try and define it. So in my mind, Web3 is effectively the, the next generation internet with a focus on, I guess, the peer to peer economy and specifically around the idea of user empowerment using blockchain technology, both the technology and the principles. So it kind of focuses on security, transparency, and really importantly, around more trusted interactions. I think we'll come on to that a bit later, but that is really a key concept of it. So that's my two, sure. two line summary, Jack. Can you give nice, it a go? Nice, very concise.
1: Um, yeah, I think I I, I would say Web3 is really this new kind of phase of the internet. It's an evolution of the internet, and, you know, Web1 or 2 to Web3. And it's all about, as you say, uh, peer-to-peer interactions. It's, it's changing the way we interact online going through fewer third parties, being less reliant on the big kind of social media giants or internet, you know, dot-com conglomerates, um, and and being able to transact a little bit more freely and, yeah, have more ownership over our data, more control over our data, who sees what and when. I think that's at the core of it, and um, it's a very techni- technologically led thing. So we'll, we'll talk about the technologies later, but I think the core of it is around this peer-to-peer idea, I think.
0: Yeah, I think, yeah, we're qu- quite aligned on that. Whether, you know, my mom would understand those definitions, I do not know. But hopefully we'll unpack it a bit further throughout the episode and maybe rely on ChatGPT to help her help define it for her. Um, Definitely. But, you know, I think to, to give it more context, obviously, you know, Web3, this is potentially the third iteration of, of the web. It might help to define some of the earlier versions. So we'll start with Web1. This was, in my mind, like, particularly it was called the, the static web. So there was a, a, a it was very focused on like limited interactions. The focus was on information consumption. It was read-only, So like I say, limited interactiveness. Effectively, companies created, hosted, and published pages that people would you know, try to get on sometimes quite uh, laboriously uh, to find information, and it was very distributed. Um, yeah, and I guess there was a lot of speculation and hyper, and that people thought there was a lot of value in that. And then there was the dot-com crash that maybe we'll come yeah. on to in a bit jack
1: yeah you're already kind of touching on some parallels which maybe we're seeing happen again history repeats itself in in web three but yeah web one was uh, very much the kind of pioneering age of the internet and the key core idea was this you know idea of disseminating information how can we uh, get people all over the world to interact with the with one another use computers to share information more efficiently than we could before with paper-based analog systems. So that was kind of the idea was spreading and sharing information for one another. And then obviously, if we get onto Web two, um, that's the kind of second phase of the internet where things change a little bit and it and things you know went from a very dis- distributed system into a slightly more centralized uh, playing field where you have these very large players who tend to be uh, controlling a lot of what we do online.
0: Yeah, and you started to talk about that. So if web one was the static web, a lot of people refer to web two as the dynamic web. So there was far more focus on interactiveness, collaboration, you know, user-generated content. It was all around personal user experience and, and user kind of focused abilities. Um, and this kind of led to, I guess, the, the perfect examples are the social media giants, Facebook, Twitter, all these kind of centralized gatekeepers that focused on user experience. And the reason they did this was to draw users in so that the users became the commodity. you know, that, that classic line that if you're using a service that's free, then you are the product and that is the case and this led to you know a lot of issues around privacy control and you know the user power aspect Is something we'll touch on quite heavily with the web 3 definition
1: yeah and i think it's fair to say that you know people are, for our age that's the uh, the web we grew up with right that's that's all we've ever known until very very recently was uh the web the web being this way of communicating with people social media dominated um you know user generated content being our tweets our, our photos on instagram our, our, our friend networks on on facebook and things like that and all that data you know until relatively recently and we started seeing various documentaries come out we had the cambridge analytica kind of scandal going on that's the first time i really realized all, all this stuff we've been doing online this whole time is actually this data is being aggregated and collected and, and used in ways that we wouldn't necessarily be be happy with behind closed doors. Right. So I think it's, uh, it's, it, it's interesting being of that generation where, you know, we're, we're seeing this is the first phase we've transition we've seen in the web, I think.
0: Yeah, definitely. And I think like I say that the Cambridge Analytica scandal was kind of opened a lot of people's eyes around like data ownership. You think like, I mean, five, ten years ago, most people, including me, I wouldn't really care about data ownership. I think, you know, uh, Facebook, they might see the, the post that I put out there. Does that really matter? But then you see like, the real impact of them having access and control over all of this data. And I think, you know, some of the surveys and questionnaires they put out after that that scandal, people were very unhappy. It was like 80% plus of people were very unhappy that, that data was being used in that way. But in the same sense, when you, when you ask them, further details about would they move from the social media platforms because of this and they said no and that's because the user experience is so good and there's no competition out there these companies have monopolized the space in a sense and so people might feel disgruntled or upset that the data is being used in this way but not so much so that they're going to stop using the platforms and this is kind of a real value added of web3
1: yeah and i think we're starting to touch on a really key issue and concept here of incentives like if you ask the question why did we go from a web one that was very open uh, distributed where you know it it was a focus on making everyone's computers interoperable so we could share things easily one computer can talk to another that was the kind of aim and then web two we went down this kind of um, content driven social media driven route where now we're familiar with we have uh, advertising all over them you know that's when we say if you're if you're using something for free then you are the product you're paying for something that was free on the surface, but with your time and your attention because you're being constantly advertised to and, and, and all that data is being fed back into algorithms to, to try and advertise to you better. You know, So this is touching on that idea of the incentives of web two being very, very different from web one. And then web three now I think is uh, going back a little bit and also you know providing new incentives to improve the problems of web two through incentives and technology basically.
0: Yeah, exactly. I think if you think of like web one as static, the user experience was very limited, but people had control because there wasn't much data being exchanged in a way. And then web two was all about user experience. And that was at the detriment of privacy control and and user power, really. And web three hopes to kind of combine the benefits of both. You have the fantastic user experience that web two currently provides, but users also have control control of the data ownership of the data and with that they have the privacy of that data you know the ability to choose who and when someone can see that data and know that it's not being passed between 100 people every time they they submit a photo or a post and you know a lot of people may not think they care about that I mean my mom might not care about her privacy like owning data what does that really mean to her like we said before it's quite interesting that people at a high level care about this stuff but when it comes to practical terms then they're not going to change and you keep talking about you know the economic incentives i think we're going to see and one of the the main kind of i guess core uh focuses of web3 is how people we can incentivize people with this data ownership it doesn't just mean that you own the data it means that you can also commoditize your own data and potentially profit from people using your data and you have the ability to do that And i think that's going to be very exciting for us to see
1: I think it's maybe it's worth just name-dropping a couple of the other problems that we'll we'll probably talk about more in, in in the series. But you know, things that we see as problems, and we don't necessarily connect it to the broken incentives of web 2. So things like um trolling on, on Twitter or bot farming or click farming, um, these are you know largely because the platforms themselves are free. The fact that we have predominantly subscription-based services and you know not all all the companies that use them are actually starting to struggle because it's not necessarily the most attractive business model people don't want to pay for that many subscriptions there's you know something like four or five subscriptions maximum that most people are willing to to pay for and then there are there are all these other potential downstream effects that we're just starting to see you know how it's affecting uh, cultural thing, you know how it's affecting attention spans. Uh, people growing up um, in this new age, people are young, younger than us, who are now struggling to to uh, hold their attention on things. We're seeing downstream effects of these that are potentially really damaging of how Web two has been set up. So I think all of these are problems that will will end up touching on in, in the future. But it's good to bear in mind that Web three is it's a big it's a big topic and it's touching a lot of these different issues at the same time. I think
0: yeah i I think when people think of web3 they they tend to think of the buzzwords you know crypto R nfts these like hype and speculation tools blockchain uh, yeah even that word has become a, a buzz um but I mean, it's so much more than just crypto and NFTs. And I think, you know, we're seeing that more and more utility is coming from the the Web3 world and the ecosystem. I've definitely noticed it in the last like two to three years, especially. And that's very exciting. There's like a a multitude of kind of, you know, use cases and applications that I'd never even thought about before that I've seen like the last few years. And we'll talk about them a bit later in the show. But it's a really exciting time. And we talked earlier about the, the trust aspect as well. And I think that's super important. It's not that it's going to be a completely trustless economy in the future, but the, the trust is going to work in, in a different way. I mean, right now, when you're inter- interacting in Web2, you trust the third-party provider to kind of ensure that things happen. I think a really nice analogy that I heard before was that um, in a Web2 model, it's like it's the trust mechanism is similar to car lanes. You trust that the car won't veer off the, out of the lanes to, to hit you. Um, Whereas in a Web3 model, it's far more trustless, not completely trustless, but far more trustless. You have visibility into the inner workings of consensus and the mechanisms. So you can compare it more to train tracks where you see that the train is on train tracks. And with that visibility, you know, with a high degree of certainty, what is going to happen. And I quite like that analogy. I've maybe expanded it a bit too much. but (laughs) I like that as well.
1: I really like that. I think, uh, yeah, you've got this difference between trusting other people in the system, trusting the, the drivers of the cars and trusting the actual infrastructure. So I can see, you know, the protocol that I trust in that case is that uh, the mechanics of a train sticking to its rails, that's much more trustworthy than maybe some drug person driving their car. You know, you can see how that's more appealing as, a, as an idea.
0: I'm glad you like that. I tried to use that with my mom, and she she had no <laughs> idea. She was like, that didn't help at all. She was like, I trust yeah. that the train driver won't hit me as well. I'm like, oh, yeah, I suppose. <laughs> I guess
1: maybe one one final point on Web two as well is that we're now seeing the proliferation of lots of new AI tools and models um, that are being trained on that data, that very data that we as users have supplied and and essentially given up uh, in, in in return for using social media. That's now been used to train these these AI agents that are that are now answering all our questions. So. Maybe it's good to you know test that out and see how how good they are based on what's happening on the internet. So I know you've got you you teed up ChatGPT to to give us maybe a more concise, more direct to the point definition of Web three. So do you want to maybe take us through what 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 ChatGPT thinks?
0: Yeah, so ChatGPT defines Web3 as, in one sentence as a decentralized user-centric evolution of the internet that empowers individuals with greater control, privacy, and ownership of their data and digital assets through blockchain technology and peer-to-peer interactions. Now, that is nice. That is very nice. nice.
1: It's pretty impossible to keep up. I don't know how you... how how well you think you manage with everything but how can you how can you define something when it's changing every day as well
0: exactly and i think to kind of relate to the the web one definition we had this kind of hype and speculation boom where everyone was kind of investing there were schemes everywhere to kind of get in on the dot-com era and then there was this crash And i think we maybe we've seen some of that so far where there's this hype around you know most people when they think of web3 they think around crypto they think around art nfts they're the the two biggest terms that we always see in this ecosystem and most of that is speculative. Most of that, you know, doesn't provide utility, doesn't provide value to end, end users, just people with money who want to gamble effectively. And that's quite frustrating, I think, especially for maybe people in, in our field where we're trying to build things that help people, that add value, that, you know, create value. And most mm-hmm. people you think of Web3, they have the connotations of crypto and NFTs.
1: Well, that's, that's an interesting segue, I think, because it's an elephant in the room we introduce ourselves as kind of researchers and, and 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 working in tech in blockchain specifically and we haven't really mentioned it very much in web3 yet so i don't know what what, what, what for what's the connection that's brought us here at the uh, you know to this to doing this podcast from a blockchain background What well, what's the connection with web3 for you
0: well i think the technology in principle is, well, It's both the technology and principles of blockchain are the fundamental principles of Web3. It's all about, you know, distribution and and trust distribution and kind of trust in the technology. And I think, I mean, there are obviously more elements to to Web3. You know, we could talk about IPFS and distributed storage systems and all this kind of stuff, but it's blockchain is at the core and it's all about, you know, creating a, a level playing field using this technology And not having these kind of centralized repositories, you know, the Facebooks of the world that act as the authority of data, basically. What are your thoughts on that, Jack?
1: Yeah, I I agree. Um, I would kind of look at the history of where, of, of how blockchain has become, you know, I would say probably a household name. I'd say most people actually know about blockchain, which is weird because when I first started working in this industry, no one did. It was a very strange thing. People used to say, do you, you know, do you work for the blockchain? It's like, not, <laughs> not exactly. Um, so if you if you kind of look at where the term web three came from, I think most people now attribute it to uh, Gavin Wood, who was one of the, the kind of core founding members of Ethereum. And one of the minds behind that now is kind of moved on to polka dot. So you know, Ethereum, polka dot two of the leading blockchains. To the the largest by market cap, by, by usage, and everything like this, and it, it it's no mistake that blockchain has been evolving at a very similar uh, time um, as Web three, because the crossover technologies that are used to, to, to make uh, blockchain work um, are very similar, and and all the all the technologies that are being used in Web three, which we'll we'll kind of get onto in later episodes, I think, because there's so much to talk about. But the, the thing to know is that they're almost being kind of tested on blockchains. They're being uh, bedded and developed and put into practice on blockchains first. A lot of the time for quite niche applications, quite a small set of people who are thinking, well, this would be a cool thing to do. How do we achieve this? They look at these tools like you know, cryptography is one of these fields that's allowing lots of things to happen. Mm-hmm. Um, and that's always being used first by blockchain. I mean, if you look at you know, why, why do we even talk about blockchain? Where, where did that come from? So Bitcoin is what started really everyone talking about blockchain it, You know, from 2008. That is when it came into the public consciousness. And when Bitcoin came out, it was all about this idea of for, for payments specifically, how do we remove or how do we remove intermediaries that aren't required? So how mm-hmm. do we reduce the cost of transacting? by minimizing how much trust, as you say, we have on different parties in the system. And I really see web three as a as a logical evolution of that idea, a generalization of that to not just payments and, and kind of financial systems, but to the internet overall, because of the same kind of the same problems and solutions can apply that that's probably what I've started to identify. So that's why I think they're so kind of intrinsically linked now, at this point.
0: Yeah, and I think that that it's really important. I know that we were talking earlier about, I mean, in in that original, uh, the Bitcoin paper, there was a talk about, you know, peer-to-peer exchange. And I think, you know, one of the premises of that is own your own data. And we've talked a little bit about that. But what does that actually mean? Like, what does own your own data mean? I don't think many people before the last five, six years, especially, well, definitely not I, thought, that you could own your own data I wouldn't even know why I would want to own my own data you know and you don't really think about Facebook yeah even even that brings a question what does it mean to own my data I don't don't I own my data you know exactly and you think like okay I own my data like uh, Facebook maybe hold it on my behalf and then there was all these like leaks and scandals we've seen about how they're using that data it really did bring it into the forefront of a lot of people's minds like what is it to own your own data and I think there has been a shift in mindsets. Now people feel that they should be empowered in this space. And it's, it's not a big ass to say, you know, I want privacy. I want to choose who can see my data. I should own my data on my device. And when I feel I would need to use it, then I can selectively disclose that to someone. And I think that's a massive paradigm shift. And like I said before, maybe there's a lot of people that don't understand the value in that. But more and more, I think, you know, it's not just the tech savvies that are seeing the value in that, but also like the governments are seeing the value in that. There's all this stuff around GDPR compliance and, you know, people do have a right to privacy. And we're seeing that there's a a big kind of emphasis on this lately. And I think, you know, Web3 is going to be, I mean, it's such a wide term, but one of the main aspects of Web3 is going to be data ownership. And we'll probably talk about it a lot more in future episodes about how you can actually enable that data ownership. But it is a core concept. I think people are starting to wake up to that.
1: Yeah, well, none most more so so than, you know, we mentioned the history repeating itself a little bit. There are there are similarities of Web3 as there were with Web1. So this idea of things being more distributed, more decentralized, um kind of interoperable standards rather than mm. silos in companies and for me the one of the biggest confirmation moments was when I started seeing Tim Berners-Lee himself you know talking about this issue so if you, you, well, explain if you who that is, well very good point so mm. <laughs> again if, if I was talking to your mum I would say <laughs>
0: um, Why are you my mum so much this is <laughs> you brought her into this um
1: so tim, tim berners-lee is widely regarded as the kind of founding father of the internet of, of web 1 so he was kind of the first person to conceptualize this data sharing mm. paradigm how do we spread information using computers that was the the idea right and then he envisioned it as this kind of i would say slightly utopian but um something different to what web2 became and, and he seems very 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 dissatisfied with what web2 is and is now making great efforts to to change that with exactly what you're talking about there with data sharing and, and, and ownership so it's yeah super interesting
0: i mean yeah and I, I don't know that much about him like what's he been saying specifically
1: ah <laughs> oh, i I, ha- I have looked up quotes before i have used quotes of his in in kind of in in, in presentations and things because obviously, I highly regard him as his number one <laughs> fan in many ways. <laughs> but he's, you know, he's he's building a company to do just this. He's building a company um, to you know, allow users to take full control of their data. So to permission you know, exactly who sees which data, when, and for what reasons. And yeah. it's kind of a, po- po- a concept of pod. So I would keep my data in a little pod over here. So yeah, I can't. I can't produce any. well I, I'll research pod, one the next time. Not done
0: pod before, but I think yeah, that relates pod. It's our first pod on the pod. So wow, nice. I like yeah. that. It's gonna be our catch line. Um, I think there's a point there that you, you, you spoke about earlier. Well, it kind of made me think about it. Could you say the word pod? Um, interoperability and how that relates. Like the, that's a big part of Web three and the Web three agenda. So right now we have these big players like Google, Facebook, Twitter who are these central kind of bastions and gatekeepers for what's done and how people interact on, on their kind of applications. And that makes interoperability quite hard. You know, I have to yeah. sign up with each of these different websites every single time I have to KYC to start, use these different websites every time yeah, I that's have the,
1: the switching cost idea, I think, you know, Yeah, exactly. It's, it's so difficult to move from one. You can't, how do you, I don't even know how to, to port In- all my data across to a new platform, you
0: know? Exactly. You personalize, you have like, you know, a fan base, likes and subscribers in one area. You want to get that that stuff across as well. You don't want to start again when you move to a new social media platform, for example. So that's where this term interoperability came from. It's all about being able to take your profile, your experiences, the data that's kind of relevant to you from one platform to the next. And you know, there's probably a lot of resistance from the big players in Silicon Valley to do this because they want to they want to make it sticky. Facebook doesn't want you to be able to move to Twitter. Why wouldn't they? That's back to
1: the incentives, exactly. Right? It's in it's in their best interest. I think the term is called platform lock in. Right? Mm. It's in their best interest to lock you in to their platform because that's how they can monetize you as the product. You can you can be a source of data for them. You can be a, a consumer of advertising. Yeah. Um, so yeah, it's it's not in their interest to make things interoperable. And again web one was all about this idea of interoperability it was all about how can we make everyone on the wo- in 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 the, in the world able to easily share information that was the key goal so you know that's 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 like the definition of interoperability how do we just share information frictionlessly
0: and then exactly. web
1: two kind of took it the opposite way
0: and we're seeing this as a big project that's come out now blue sky by jack dorsey Um, Where he's moved away from the vision of, you know, web two, you are the product web three, the content is the product. And it's all about, you know, creating kind of a a layer that multiple social media platforms can build on top of. And it's all around user centricity, then you have the ability to just move your data, your information, who kind of hold your data as well, get that portability to transfer between different applications. you know, One day, I don't like what Twitter is doing. I'm gonna to move to Facebook. Maybe their search is slightly better. It's more relevant to me, but I don't wanna to have to sign up again. I wanna maintain all the data across yeah. the two and I get that portability. The focus with Web3 is all around user centricity and that's an yeah. aspect of that. So
1: I think that's, that's 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 a
0: key point, right? And we've been talking pretty abstractly.
1: Uh, we've talked about problems in a little bit more detail, but not so much what are the actual use cases of this right so you know what would be your number one use case right now what's the thing that excites you most that you could do in web3
0: oh that's a big one so I, I mean I, it's not the most exciting one. But if I was talking to my mum, which I keep, we're both having lots of conversations with mum recently. We should get She's, her on as our first guest. I, God, she wouldn't be, even be able to use the laptop. She can't even use Web Two. Mm-hmm. Um, so yeah, it, it, the big one for me and the most kind of easily explainable one is certificates. And like I, I love to use the university certificate kind of um, exchange kind of example, but this could apply and to what identity. is a certificate? And what's the definition, just for anyone who, who doesn't it, it, know? It's a reference to some kind of credential, I guess, like a, a kind of, so I, the perfect example I'd give is a university certificate. You know, I have a degree that says I did pretty okay at a, an okay university uh, in engineering, basically. When I go for an interview and I say, you know, I've got a degree from X university in Y field, how do they verify that? right now it's so hard like there's millions of people with degrees that it's really difficult and quite tedious and time-consuming for them to manually verify that i am alec burns and this certificate applies to me and is valid What do they do there's no digital process really like the actual process is typically to ring up the university and manually verify that i think on the scale of like all the people around the world with credentials as far ranging from you're a doctor you're a therapist you know you're an engineer you're a mechanic like this well you know you say doctor that makes me think of how do you verify anything
1: to do with your, your, your medical history for example and you know i know it's i know it's particularly difficult to just you know, get a a, a complete set of your records to transfer them from one place to another, because I think a lot of these, this kind of verification aspect doesn't exist or the systems to, you know, again, maybe that's an interoperability Mm -hmm. angle as well, right? You've got different systems at play. Um, But I think, I think what you're saying applies to so many things and so many critical things, you know? that aren't is, just certificates yeah. that people are lying on their cvs it's like yeah ex- really it's
0: mean, yeah, very relevant to us basically that's why i try and use that example but It's also insurers like how do you get a mortgage? like you've got all this data how do you verify data i think the certificate's a nice example because it's something that everyone has this kind of uh, kind of it's tangible it's a very tangible thing it's like a verification that's issued by some kind of trusted party but how do i verify it efficiently? And that's a really, really good example of how the Web3 model comes into place. Like, I want to own that certificate. I don't want anyone to see that certificate unless I want them to see that certificate. Like, It could be quite private for me for whatever reason. I want to own that on my mobile device. But if I go to a job application or an interview and I want to selectively disclose that to them to prove that I can do what I say I can do, they should be able to verify that instantly. Well, yeah, I think you the, you touched on two words there that kind of stuck out, right? The the
1: big, big concepts that go with all this. And I, you often said, I often you, do that. You said uh, you said efficiency, which mm-hmm. I think is often the source of a lot of these problems, right? Why is it difficult to move my medical records when I you know when I leave uni and I get that certificate? Why is it so difficult to move back to my home GP from the one I had at university? It's because the inefficiency involved in doing that, a lot of paper-based systems, a lot of documents. Efficiency is often one of the one of the ways I would describe the the, the, ban- the benefit, the value proposition of Web3. It can provide mm-hmm. much more efficient ways of doing things. Mm-hmm. Then you also mentioned privacy, right, which is a huge topic, huge topic. But again, all those technologies that we, we will come on to in the future talking about, a lot of them are focused on privacy, this idea of just only you... That I allow to see my data can see it, and I know that for a fact. I know, you know. You think about how how far is your CV travelled? The CV that you you may have lied about this fictitious degree on. Have you how seen far is that? <laughs> well, this is the thing. Who knows where it's circulating? Once you pass that on to to someone, right? To a recruiter, for example. Who knows? How do we how do we even track that kind of uh, information? That's a, that, that is a big thing that you know. I think is a
0: worry for, for a lot of people when they apply for jobs is will anyone know that this exactly. has been passed on and it comes back to the cambridge analytica scandal like if people knew how their data was being used that they wouldn't be okay with it i think and the thing is we don't have that tra- transparency we don't have that provenance i think that's a big word that's used often we can't see where, what the chain is, where it's being sent to. You think that Facebook just store it on some server, and it disappears forever, and it's just locked up whenever, unless you want to use it. But realistically, like that is the commodity. That is mostly, apart from advertising, how they're making money. Sometimes, and you know, we have to be aware of that. And I think that's you know one of the main kind of aims of Web three is to to get this privacy and control of data, so you yeah. know where data is being used. And I think a big exciting thing in in my mind, and this this makes it very tangible. Data ownership, whatever. Some people don't even care about privacy. But as soon as you think about the monetary aspect as well, like right now, the big players in Web2, they are collecting the money for your data. Imagine a world where you get money for your own data. They have to request that they use your data for, I don't know, a survey or they sell it to a market or whatever. Yeah. And you get rewarded for that. You're incentivized. That's the key, right. Buying. I don't think it's that people,
1: personally, I don't think it's that people are uncomfortable with giving the data or producing the data you know we are we are we are quite happy with the most people are quite happy with how things work because there isn't a better way at the moment mm. on social media and i i, I often wonder I, I expect if we do move to a web3 world we will probably end up with most people doing exactly what they do now they'll just earn more from it they'll well they'll earn something from it for starters mm. and be able to profit more directly than having to you know most most people who uh, are on social media most users of social media so your influencers um, you know, your, your TikTok stars, the people who profit from it, you, you see, they become advertisers themselves. It's the only business model in town in mm. Web2. And, and, and that's kind of the thing that I think is disrupting. But yeah, Do I think uh,
0: reject, or? I'm
1: not. I'm not yet. Unfortunately, <laughs> I, I need to retain some some modicum of my uh, of my attention span so I'm not on there yet
0: if this podcast goes well i'm sure you'll be all over yeah. tiktok and you'll be monetizing it left right and center um yeah. so i gave you my use case certificates do you have a big exciting use case of web3
1: yes so i think you, we were starting to touch on that but not explicitly so let me make it explicit i think micropayments and the 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 huge space of possibilities that they open up are massive i think that for me that's the most exciting value proposition in web 3. so what do i mean by micropayments i mean doing payments that are small micro so are below the amount that you can do in the existing world in the web 2 world or in the physical world as well you know and again that's kind of due to efficiencies the cost of doing payments the cost of uh, someone accepting your payment is uh, actually so it's high enough that you you can't send say one penny or less than a penny um it's so the, the kind
0: like of card and visa like they're charging like quite high exactly. rate basically so it makes yes. small fee like small money's infeasible and is that, do, you, do you
1: know anyone who owns a small business
0: is this like you're engaging with the crowd this, right is now. Your,
1: this is me asking you if you know the price of a pint of milk
0: now. <laughs> uh i i do know someone with a small business yes and can you tell me what my card is <laughs>
1: No, so, so the reason I ask is I, I know I know a few, and I, it was only through them and relatively recently that I kind of realised how expensive it is to accept payments, and how you know lots of lots of payments are uh, you know virtually not not worth accepting, and that's mm-hmm. why if you go into a, a corner shop or something, you have these minimum spends because it, below a certain threshold, uh, your your merchant you're who's accepting the payment the person in the shop will be effectively losing money or it won't be you know feasible and that's the source of this micropayments issue so Mm. before this web3 paradigm came along we didn't really have a good way of doing that then bitcoin and blockchain came along and gave us a practical credible uh, way of doing micropayments so what does that mean in practice what does it mean i can actually do is why do i want to spend a penny am i just going to go around (laughs) all all the sweet shots buying penny sweets one at a time (laughs) what
0: era are you from that you refer to things as penny
1: sweets (laughs) yeah i'm showing my age now um it's a bit for me it's again it's it's couched in the internet specifically so the story i always go back to when i'm talking about micropayments is there was an article i don't remember which newspaper it was in it was Mm -hmm. around uh 2019. So all the machinations of Brexit was going on. I think there was a particularly spicy headline in a newspaper that I was really interested in reading. I thought, okay, I'm going to read this. And I clicked on it and it was a subscription only newspaper. So I would have had to sign up for a Mm. subscription to read it. Um, and otherwise, you know, it was blocked and I thought, oh, okay, well, this is, this looks really interesting. I really, I want to be, you know, well-informed. So I'm going to, I'm going to sign up and I signed up for the, for, for the free trial. Obviously I read the article, probably wasn't as interesting as I thought it was. And I've forgotten it all since. And after that free trial, I ended up being locked in to a subscription, um, that I went at long pains to get out of. So it took me a long time to actually. Uh, you know, you have to get on the phone. You can't just do it online because they want to, again, this isn't that, the same idea of sticky lock-in. Yeah, sticky platforms. Yeah, I get them. Exactly. So it took a long time to, to actually get unsubscribed. and I, I, All I could help thinking is, I wish I could have just paid 10p to read that article. Like, why w- mm. would, would that not have been better? Because a lot of people, a lot of subscription services in general, will let you unsubscribe easily, mm. right? It's, they're not actually quite as bad as, as that example.
0: I think they're liable to now, right? It's like a legal thing where you have yeah, to. Yeah, probably it is now. Oh, yeah, very easily because of you, maybe. Maybe you. <laughs> yeah, why? Well, yeah, well, that court case, I.
1: No. <laughs> but you, you think of ha- how many times have you been deterred from doing something because you faced a paywall, right? And mm-hmm. paying ten pound a month was not what you were prepared to do. But paying ten p to read the article might well have been you, that you know, and and there's this whole new business model and revenue model there that you know maybe that can uh, that, that maybe that can make up for subscriptions like you know mm. the newspaper industry is really struggling that's why i kind of mention it and I, I i certainly think something like media shifting to micropayments and being able to just you know pay for an article read what you like and that's mm. it and that's again it's more efficient i'm just i'm just I'm just paying for what I use. I'm paying for what I read, and that's something that really excites me as a kind of practical
0: thing. Yeah, and I guess in the same kind of in the same kind of area as well, you could imagine, you know, you pay for a movie. I think I've heard this example before. Why pay five pound for the whole movie if after five minutes you realise it's a terrible movie? Imagine paying a penny per minute or something like this, and then you know that's a that's a whole new revenue generation model. It's like it's quite exciting. This could apply to tutoring. It could apply to any kind of a human-human human interaction where you want to pay per you know time constraint rather than pay for the entire service, the exact same things we were talking about.
1: Yeah, and again, I, to keep coming back to incentives, I think not only is the business model new, but I think this could have profound changes for how businesses operate, how they compete. So if you're paying per second for something, I can imagine that incentivizing quality content production, right? Definitely, so yeah. you, know, you need to entice someone to, to not only watch, um, uh, to, to, to get the subscription and then, you know, leave after. But to to get from the first 10 minutes of the video or the film to, to, to the 90th minute of the film. Mm. You want to you, you don't want it to be this kind of clickbait. You know, clickbait is a big problem on, on YouTube and things. So you want to incentivize people. Clickbait. To, what's that? What's clickbait? Clickbait. You, you actually don't know clickbait?
0: No, I don't think so. Ah, okay.
1: So this is the idea of when you will... Uh, typically for videos but it happened i mean a lot of headlines in news are also clickbait as well it's kind of Mm. probably the og clickbait is a a news headline Uh, it's when you get a thumbnail that is particularly jazzy particularly bombastic with you know
0: can you give me an example
1: like the mandalorian episode seven was the worst thing i've ever seen and then you know, you go into the video and the actual opinion is much, much more tempered than that. And Absolutely. it's it's just a way of hooking you, basically.
0: Oh, yeah. And yeah, I thought
1: because... my good. <laughs> well, this week's is better. But uh... <laughs> but yeah, and again, this, it, it always comes back to these in- incentives, because why do we get clickbait? It's because content creators are all competing in this big, uh, you know, opaque algorithm for mm-hmm. views, for, for, for eyeballs. And the best way to feed that is clickbait. So they're, they're having to do it because that's the business model. That's how you stay afloat as a creator on 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 things like YouTube and other platforms. So yeah, I, get yeah, I would be excited for how it changes that.
0: So um, Emma from, from the studio has just sent us uh, an exciting fact about Web3 that I'm going to read there. Thank you, Emma. So more than 73 million gamers use the Web3 based Fortnite and Roblox already and that is a very exciting use case as well Mm. i am a big gamer and there's nothing better than user-generated content and i think one of the community generated content actually you know making maps making new games extending what the core concept of a game is within the community because they know it best they're the most passionate about it that they can take that and really run with it and create things that have a lot of value and i think you imagine people being rewarded and having ownership of the things they create and having this incentive model for the community to then keep propagating more generated content. I think that's a really exciting. I think gaming is going to benefit from the Web3 model, definitely.
1: Yeah, I mean, that's another thing I think micropayments lends itself to is this gamification idea in general, which, you know, applies in games and these kind of Uh, You know, we're also touching on another topic here, which I'm I'm hesitant to mention, like this whole metaverse idea. Oh, that that is definitely
0: for another episode. Let's keep that in a box. So yeah, I think we have covered a lot of things here, maybe some ambiguously, some quite specifically, but I think that kind of wraps up at a very high level what we think Web3 is. I think that should give you a suitable idea of how how much we have to learn about
1: Web3 going (laughs) forward.
0: Thanks for tuning in to another episode of Untangling Web 3, produced by Emma Camilleri. Don't forget to send us your thoughts, questions and comments on social media. And be sure to follow
1: us on your favourite podcast provider to catch the next episode. See you next time to untangle a little bit more of Web 3.
0: The views we express here are our own and do not reflect the views of our employers.